Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to you all. This is the Business Day Spotlight, your destination for African business made simple. My name is Muriwa Gavaza, and for today we're talking about uh, the housing crisis, um, you know, in South Africa. Uh, what's actually going on here? Is there a crisis? Is there no crisis? Um, and uh, some of the stats and data, you know, around some of that that's going on. Now, for today, we're going to be chatting uh, to a think tank, um, and we're going to be chatting to UTTE, uh, that is uh, the urban think tech in power, and we're going to be understanding a little bit, um, you know, around some of uh, what they are, um, you know, seeing in the market. Uh, they actually say that uh, almost 30 years after the dawn of the RDP era, South Africa's chronic housing crisis is spiraling towards a tipping point, and we're going to try and understand what that tipping point is and try to understand you know where we are for today so to help us make sense of it all uh, we are joined by uh, ben uh, collenberg who is an architect and director over at utte ben greetings to you today hi Mudiwa. thank you very much thank you for having me on so UTTE, Urban Think Tank in Power. A little bit around, uh, you know, some of the work that you guys do before we get into the housing discussion. So um, a little bit about the work and also a little history is um, we, we are actually a subsidiary, a local South African subsidiary of an international company called Urban Think Tank. Um, the, the South African partner or subsidiary company is the Urban Think Tank in Power. And, and really, this project was actually started by Urban Think Tank 10 years ago. Um, a lot of the work we do, a lot of the work the international company does revolves around social impact, especially in informality, in, in informal settings. Um, the, the company was started in, in Caracas in Venezuela, but we've done work in, you know, across Caracas, um, Rio de Janeiro. We've done a little bit of work in, in the United States of America. There's, there's, you know, there's quite a big global footprint um, around the world, of course, there's actually been quite a lot of work done in Colombia, in Barranquilla, um, and then, and then, of course, in South Africa. And and really, you know, where the South African company started was in 2012. Uh, one of the co-founders of Urban Think Tank, Alfredo Brillenberg, was invited to talk at the Design in Darba, um, coming to South Africa for the first time. There's there's many similarities and, and learnings to to be taken across and shared through you know, practices in different developing contexts. Um, and I think I think that's where it all began. I mean, was, he was fascinated personally by, by South Africa, but more than that, you know, the, 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 there was so much overlap and, and similarities and differences that we, we started to look further into it. And and yeah, that's that's how we got here. Um, fortunately for Urban Think Tank and unfortunately for you know, population of South Africa, there's no shortage of, of um, social impact challenges and social impact projects required in South Africa. And um, it only made sense, you know, in order to achieve the, our desired income or, you know, our desired impact to, to open a South African office to, you know, to really focus our work. Um, in, in the South African office, we're based in Cape Town, we, we really primarily focus on, on housing. But um, also, and I mean, I, th I think that's why we're here today. But then we do a little bit of work in schools and community centers and sports facilities, public space. So we really aren't, you know, constricted by the, 
by the housing uh, model, but it certainly is our focus at the moment. If I may ask, um, what is it about housing, you know, that you guys decided that, uh, you know, this is something that you guys want to maybe take a lead on. Like you said, there's so many social impact issues in a country, um, you know, such as uh, such as South Africa. I'm even thinking of uh, some of the other countries that you said Urban Think Tank has a presence in. Uh, a lot of South, uh, South American countries, a lot of emerging market countries, and there tends to be a lot, you know, that's going on there. But specifically for SA, why housing? So to be honest, you mentioned earlier, you know, South Africans, South Africa's, you know, we had to speak about the housing crisis, South Africa's in the housing crisis. And, and while we, you know, maybe that is true, and I think it is true, but um, I would actually argue that we're here to speak about the housing solutions, or, you know, solution, alternative solutions to existing problems. And I think, um, yeah, it's no, it's no secret that the backlog of housing grows quicker than the, the provision of housing. Um, unfortunately, I mean, I think it's, it's something that um, is is quite is, is quite a significant problem. And, and while it's not the only problem, I think you know a solid base and security of um, to be honest, on just a conceptual level, security of belonging. You know, your place in the city, your place within a country, your place within a community. Um, if if you if you are homeless, if you if that sense of security isn't um, reinforced, I think there's there's many other issues down the line that you you know you don't have the autonomy or the it's, it's very difficult to deal with so i think you know we we, we actually wanted to come at this from a different angle and say we architects we are you know we're not obviously we get into the social socio-economic challenges and the socio-economic um, context of the project but really we're experts in spatial we're the, the spatial experts we're experts in design um, and, and where it all starts is is at home, you know, is, is in, within communities, within families. Um, we especially want to invest in the next generation, you know, growing up within a more formalized, dignified, um, supportive home. And and really, that's that's kind of where it all where all um, you know the thought experiment of, of how can we make an impact, how can we make a difference. That that, that thought process led to housing. Okay, cool. So let let's actually get into some of those solutions then, Ben. Um, when we look at something like uh, RDP, right? Um, we mentioned it at the start of today's session. Um, that was uh, the reconstruction and development program, and it was a socio-economic policy framework that was implemented. Uh, by the government uh, of Nelson Mandela in 1994. And out of it, you know, um, housing was a huge um, focus um, of that particular policy. Are we saying that the policy itself, there was something wrong there? Is it, has it been an implementation thing? Uh, are we saying that perhaps um, there could have been more work done after an initial RDP phase, you know, to extend whatever that policy is like, where do we see ourselves? Because like you said, there's a housing crisis, but maybe we could uh, understand a little bit around, you know, how we've gotten here and maybe you could characterize for us what that crisis actually looks like. Um, thank you. I mean, I think to start off, I would like to um, note or to clarify that, you know, first of all, we aren't an alternative to, to the RDP or now it's actually called the BNG, the Breaking New Ground Model. And I think that um, 
you know, the, the major problem isn't the existing model, it's that there aren't additional models, it's that they're not alternative solutions to the problem. I think it's, I think the one size fits all mentality is, um, is limited. You know, it's not, it's not the issue, but it has limited scope to, to benefits, you know, benefit people on the ground. So, so why, whereas I think, you know, the, um, the RDP system is hugely admirable and absolutely necessary, you know, it, 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 is, it is limited in its impact. So that's that's where we come in, where we have a very different approach to the RDP or to the BNG model, where we, rather than a top-down um, implementation and and um, building quantity over quality, we start at a smaller scale, smaller scale interventions, working much closer with community members to both 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 to conceptualize, but then also to um, design and build the units, to design and build the communities. Um, we work at a, at a different scale to, you know, also empower the residents through the process of, of, of the collaboration, but then also through the actual construction, where about 50% of the workforce in, in the building processes are from community members or from surrounding communities, where the members are then upskilled and um, trained to, you know, to, to further on, you know, to progress. After we leave site, they've now got a skill, they're now you know, more employable than they were previously. Um, but then even within the communities, after we finish, we don't, you know, it's not a simple handover and walk away. Um, there's very careful framework set up within within the developments to, to you know, ensure the sustainability of it. Um, whereas I think, you know, working at the scale of, you know, 70 to 100 homes within a community, um, there's a lot more impact you can make there to, to on, on an individual level, whereas I think an RDP system rolling out hundreds of thousands of homes has a different layer of impact. We maybe impact many more, but at a, at a smaller scale. So, so I think you know that both systems are are absolutely you know vital, and maybe the shortfall which which we which you mentioned in your question is actually that there aren't more systems, that there aren't more options and alternatives for provision of housing. Um, I think. You know, there's, if, if I'm not mistaken, at the moment, there's about, in the, just in the Western Cape, there's about 30% of all housing provisions across the province would be considered or could be considered affordable housing. And that's including RDP, that's including um, alternative, alternative um, you know, smaller scale models, the social, the SHRA models, but um, the, the need for it is just over 70% of the population. So it's quite a disconnect in terms of the provision versus the, the need. And I think there's lots of different options for you know higher class or top tier housing, whereas there's actually very, very few, if not, you know, there are very few options for for the for the poorer communities, which I think is that's the fundamental problem. So we are a uh, business economics and finance platform. So we do need to understand, uh, you know, for now, uh, why provision hasn't gone to the bottom of the pyramid. Is it not making economic sense? Is it a, is it a space in which, um, is it a space that's seen as maybe is the 
is only for the the public sector to take care of uh you know that type of thing like what's what what are the economics at play here uh that have uh, you know kept options at uh, at at a minimum at the bottom of the pyramid so i think it's i think it's multiple factors um you know coming from an economics lens i think that's is of course the biggest factor and um, for private sector to, to to work in a space such as this it is extremely difficult um, and and i think the you know the the, the legislation the bylaws or, you know surrounding it are important you know it, it ensures that houses are built legally and um, safely but there's a lot of a lot of um red tape and bureaucracy and a lot of very time consuming processes more than anything else which make it um just, just make it stop it from being feasible for, for a private company so i mean we we're a non-profit and just to give you some context that we've we've now been doing this for 10 years it took five years before we built our first official home five years of prototyping five years of advocacy with the city um, of, of working within the communities. I mean, that's a fundamental, that's a really important um, process to follow of, of gaining trust within the community. But regardless, you know, if you look at it from a business perspective, we worked for five years to, to prove that we were able to put a, a project together. Whereas, I mean, I've come from a commercial background in architecture and um, first of all, that's a long time to work on risk. And, and second of all, the profit that you, you know, okay, well, obviously we're a non-profit, but if, if, if it was a for-profit company, the profit you'd make could never justify the amount of time and resources it would take. So I think what, you know, I think a major challenge is there aren't enough available and easily available, actually, um, grants and subsidies and, and, and systems to, to assist the private sector to actually partner with the public sector to provide housing. Um, it, it just it just isn't actually viable or feasible from a time perspective. And especially when you could be working on other projects that um, for a slightly higher market, I mean, I, I mentioned earlier that there's only 30% of, 30, you know, just under 30% of housing would fit within a, would be considered affordable. That affordable is, is far more than, you know, what, than, than what would be considered a qualifier for breaking new ground or RDP project. So there's a few different categories which work on a sliding scale for who is considered affordable housing. And it's far easier to provide for the top tier of affordable housing than the bottom tier of affordable housing because of, of you know, resources for payback, for example, or, um, you know, access to land at a slightly higher cost or even not even a slightly higher cost, just a cost you can it's, it's more easily justifiable when you can earn better from that um, and so there's there's very little option for the lowest tier of the affordable of, of the affordable market now that sounds like uh you know quite uh quite a complex um you know web that's there um like you said the hard economics uh, it sounds like uh, it's not making sense uh, for a lot of your your private sector players to be participating. You need um, to have that assistance that's coming in from the other side of the equation. Um, you know your subsidies, uh, whether it's going to be subsidies, tax breaks, tax breaks, whatever incentives need to come in. You know to make um, something happen. On the other side of the that equation, you know, you we've spoken quite a bit about, you know, the private sector is the political will 
to make something like this happen. Uh, could you talk to us just around what something like that looks like? Because if we're saying that the current situation is untenable for the private sector because a lot of the time the return is just not going to make sense, um, what's happening on the, I'm going to call it the public sector uh, piece of that equation, you know, buy-in from government, that type of thing. Um, you know, where do we sit in terms of making this happen? Because um, I guess we've explained why the private sector hasn't really been playing. And now the question is just around why. And I'm sure this is a question that is asked in many different spheres. Uh, you know, why isn't government doing more, you know, to address this issue? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very good question, and unfortunately, I don't have don't have the answers. I wish I did, but I, you know, I do think that there's there's amazing vehicles out there, not enough, but you know, in terms of grants and subsidies and infrastructure grants and housing grants, you know, I think that there are actually amazing structures out there that are quite well hidden from the private sector, um, not on purpose, obviously, but. Um, and not even hidden, but also protected. And I think it's you know it's important, for example, to 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 be um, to be a, an authorized provider, you know, confirmed to, to build a SHRA recognized development with a social housing regulatory regulatory authority, um, where they then contribute a significant amount of the of the construction costs and, and assist in actually developing it. Which obviously then, you know, assist in your returns if you're not contributing the full construction fee. Um, it takes years to be to be fully registered, and and it takes quite a um, it's quite a challenge to to get that authorization. Um, and and that's from from a point of protection that there's no one applying to you know to build social housing that doesn't quite qualify or that doesn't run. Quite benefit, you know, it doesn't deserve to benefit. But um, a, a major part of that is also, you know, the, the, the Shra model is for rental. So, it, it, which and it works very well for rental, but it's not all encompassing. So, for example, in order to protect the, the income, in order to protect the development, you have to prove that the recipients will be within a certain income bracket, uh, formal income. And and as we all know, many South Africans aren't formally employed. But rather informally employed, and and to, to you know to provide three months payslip is actually impossible for many, and and many who are still paying you know school fees, who have a car, who have a you know paying rent somewhere else, but the, there's you know the barrier to entry is 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 significant. So I think you know while again while there are amazing models out there and amazing opportunities, there's not quite enough, and they're not actually easy enough. Um, to access and, and and maybe even quick enough to access um, to to really make it worthwhile for a greater proportion of the of the private sector. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense, and I like the fact that you know you are already talking about the people uh, because we've spoken a lot about the government, we've spoken a lot about the private sector, but something needs to be said about the people who are actually meant to occupy these uh, particular houses. How are those engagements like? And uh, is there support, um, you know, from uh, that specific demographic for um, the plan that uh, UTTE is coming, has, has put together, you know, to address the issue? 
Yes, I think, um, you know, it's, it's funny, we usually actually start at this point, but it's, you know, I think maybe one of the successes of UTT is we've kind of, we're working top down, you know, partnering with the city, but more importantly, we're actually working bottom up, bottom up. So, so the community collaboration is, you know, is actually key to the success of any power development that it's, it really, um, I don't think we've mentioned it on, you know, on, this discussion yet but so far all of our sites that have developed have been invaded sites previously so we work with existing communities on the sites living informally to empower them and uplift the community formalize the living conditions you know and to to safe and more dignified um you know housing quality um but that also comes with a huge amount of trust and, and engagement you know with with those existing communities i think i think too often to build affordable housing um existing communities are decanted or relocated or, or you know there's too great a density on a site or the site is, doesn't have the correct zoning so it's far easier to just remove them and take them elsewhere you know for somewhere that's easier to develop maybe or more practical to develop or quicker and I think it's you know there's an amazing um, amazing network of, of support and you know I guess it's, it's relationships there's these existing communities have been in place since um, I mean our community one that we our very first full community that we developed um, had been an informal settlement since 1986 so for you know nearly 20 years before the RDP home had properly began, this community had been living here together. So to to break up that community, to break up those social ties, and um, you know, it, it doesn't, we, we don't believe we can bet, we can replicate it better elsewhere. I think we, we quite firmly believe that, you know, it's important to work with the community where they are to really uplift them and empower them. And obviously with that comes a huge amount of trust. So, in the, the very first resident who allowed us to demolish his home you know, and with the promise of building a new home took a huge amount of, um, you know, he, he really took a leap of faith at that, we, that when we then delivered four other residents then put their hands up to say, you know what, we, we trust that you will do this. I think, um, unfortunately, these communities hear a lot of, get, are often promised things that aren't always, um, Followed through, and and that 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 lack of trust, I, I guess, just manifests and grows, um, especially for outsiders coming in to make a difference. Well, you know, why should they trust us? We've got no skin in the game. We don't live there. We don't, you know, participate in the in the in that township economy that they can hold us accountable in other ways. Um, but you know, to gain that trust is so 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 important. To you know, just in terms of strengthening those existing community ties and, and relationships, and, um, and and building them up from where they are. I mean, I think it's I think that's the the most important most important um, aspect of the project. You know, one of the ways that um, housing policy or a lack thereof, especially from an execution point of view tends to manif manifest itself um, is in informal settlements. I think you mentioned just, uh, you, you touched on it just now. But I wanted to drill down a little bit more into some of those uh, informal settlements because um, in some of the writing that's come out of the UTTE is the fact that uh, we should not be stigmatizing 
um, informal, you know, some of these informal settlements. Um, do you have examples of where something like that has actually worked, you know, in terms of uh, some of the plans that you guys have, uh, you know, put together in terms of helping some of the more informal informal spaces? So, so to be honest, we actually, I mean, as it stands, we are relatively new to, you know, the South African informal settlement. So, I mean, I mentioned earlier, we've done a lot of work across um, Colombia and Venezuela and um, Brazil. And I think in South Africa, we've now um, recently established ourselves in, in, in earning that trust in working with the community and developing strong relationships with, with community leaders and community liaisons and um, uh, and, and just community members. I mean, I think something I, I didn't quite mention earlier is, you know, in, in creating those frameworks for, for the community to thrive, you, you forget that those frameworks already exist, um, you know, in, in, in with community leaders and, and leadership within those communities. But regardless, we've, we've only, you know, we've, we've relatively recently in the last few years established that and, and have had from our very first um, development in Site C in Kailicha, um, there have been nine other sites in the you know in the vicinity within about two or three kilometres of um, that, that have been invaded informal settlements, which have which the residents and the community leaders have put their hands up to say, will we please come and develop those sites next? Would we be open to that? Which has been, you know, quite a quite a proof of concept in terms of, you know, if you call it a hub and spoke system, we've now got the hub, and um, you know, where we can really make an impact in providing, you know, amenities and facilities, schools, creches, community centres, churches, which then complement the housing. Um, now that that kind of that that can be seen as the hub, but the spokes are are as soon as you start to branch out, there's been other opportunities, both from city and from other community members looking at you know developing elsewhere and i think um you know you mentioned that it's, it's, it's quite an interesting concept to play with it that, that informal settlements are often seen as the problem but actually too many they're the solution because there's you know thousands and thousands of immigrants every year with nowhere to live no provision for housing and and you know informal settlements provides that for a relatively um relatively affordable price and, and, and a relatively adaptive price. I think there's, there's, a, there's something very agile in the township economy. As soon as something is needed, it's provided because you don't have to jump through all the hoops that you do in, um, you know, through the bylaws in any other formal context. Um, and, and I really do think working from that bottom up, there's a huge amount of potential. I mean, I think, I think there's, a, there's a fantastic um, example which um, we haven't been involved in, in, in we haven't been involved with at all at 69 Leratoli in Langer, which is which is an art gallery which has recently opened, um, I think it was earlier this year. But but even from that, there's a, there's a, in that Leratoli, um, in that street, there's a whole hub of activity that's now that's now started. And it's just it's as one as one company, as one business, as one entity rises up, it just pulls everything else up with it, and it's a certain kind of. Um, catalyst or catalytic reaction where, where it's really lifting every lifting that whole area up. It's quite amazing to see. Um, and, and I really think that, you know, it's not not to say it's not important to get affordable housing within the CBD, but if we can lift up the existing informal sites, I think it will be hugely impactful 
to 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 um, combat this this mentality of of wealthy areas and and you know wealthy areas with amenities and facilities and um, opportunities and then the informal you know poorest areas where it's just a transitional place you come in as soon as you can afford to you get out of there um do you have examples you know of where it doesn't it's obviously because you guys are still relatively new to the market it doesn't need to be south africa but anywhere else in the world or whatever examples uh that you can give us of informal settlements where some type of uh, rejuvenation or some type of assistance has been able to be given you know to uplift uh, a community yes i mean We've one of our funding, one of the biggest projects that Urban Think Tank have, has undertaken is a series of vertical gymnasiums, um, which are which are typically in the favelas, in the townships, in in, in, um, in uh, Venezuela and and Colombia. But ultimately, what, where it started was within the within these communities, there was a sports field that was typically at the bottom of a. Um, typically at the bottom of a slope or a hill or something that was often um, damaged or dangerous to, to you know, congregate, congregate in and spend time in. And um, as a way to, you know, the project started as a way to protect the space, protect the residents, protect the, that gathering space, that, um, you know, this is something that's not unique to South America. It's between South Africa and, and, and most developing worlds in the poorest areas, there's, there's no, third space you know there's no space outside of work or home it's, it's either you, you go to work you come home and, and the, you know that the, the other opportunities are kind of a couple of bars here or there or the streets so um they they don't actually there's often not a third space to meet and, and you know um strengthen social ties and and just in, you know connect with people outside of work and home and um these projects in South America, the vertical gymnasiums, really sought to to provide those amenities, those facilities, community facilities in the town, in, in the in the you know South American townships, in the favelas. Um, so what they started off with was was a sports field, often started around sports, and in fact that's where the projects were initially conceptualized. That they often started off with just saying we need some sort of pavilion or seating area to watch sports. We need a covered facility to protect the you know. The, sports field the equipment or the operation um, and they're in very small spaces you know horizontal footprint and that's where the project you know was conceptualized and if we grow it upwards we can add a whole lot more and um, you know support for the community whether it's whether it is um, you know youth cafes or support centers or um, you know daycares and creches they were combined into this vertical program and it was quite simple, very you know cleverly conceptualized and simply made for for impact. Um, and and there have been a couple of them that we've built in in different cities and different areas, and um, in the last 20 years that have had a massive impact. And it's you know it's it's actually quite you know 20 years down the line now it's quite it's actually quantifiable the impact. You, you can see how um, crime rates have dropped and how um, there's fewer fewer people on the fewer kids on the street and you know there's that there's that extra activation after school and before you know going to sleep where you would get up to you know i don't know you could it's it's easy to get caught up in gangs or caught up in um crime or drugs and i think you know obviously it's not 
the solution or the only solution, but it's had a massive positive impact in these areas. Um, and, and I think, you know, we, we're building our first community centre currently. It's going to be completed in March next year. And we're really hoping to have a, you know, to see a similar impact, um, you know, on the side of the sea. No, most certainly, and at least we can see the fact that there are learnings that are coming out from other countries and also, you know, the places like the Flavelas, which, are, you know, quite, uh, I'm yet to experience it in real life, but at least from what I've read and seen, um, it seems to be, you know, quite a dense and, you know, complex issue that is uh, being dealt with, um, you know, in places like Brazil. Before we let you go, uh, Ben, just uh, your thoughts, you know, maybe we're asking you to look a little bit into the future here. Um, you know, around uh, growing populations, because that's the one thing, you know, that is consistent, you know, across different territories, the fact that, um, you know, population growth is a a factor that needs to be considered. South Africa's population is, um, you know, slated to grow over the coming years. And chances are, if we are flagging a housing crisis now, then with a bigger population, it makes sense that a housing crisis would be would also scale at the same side at the you know in line with the population growth as well how does utte actually plan to actually scale up um some of its plans to address some of these issues um i think that's a really important um you know topic to to note i think that um i was predicted a few years ago that the seven billionth person to be born on earth, the eight billionth person to be born on earth, and the nine billionth person to be born on earth were all going to be on the African continent. And just because the you know the, the African population is growing faster than any other continent. Um, and it's quite scary. I think the predictions state that it's about nine and a half or nine point nine point two billion you're going to peak at nine point two million population in, in twenty thirty seven um, before it starts to drop again. And that drop is actually quite a scary thing when you think about the reasons that the, the population is going to start to, you know, drop. And I think the, the lack of provisions of, um, you know, basic human rights is going to be a big factor in that in that decline. And I think we need to be quite careful ahead of time, quite conscious and intentional ahead of time, of, you know, to avoid that. So, so housing is, you know, one of the one of the you know, fundamental human rights, simply protection from the elements. But, um, you know, we, we really, we quite um, adamant that it needs to not just be protection from the elements, that it needs to be properly considered, that it needs to be safe and secure and dignified and, and facilitate interaction. And, and with, you know, it's, the, the, it's just under a million people just in, in Cape Town, just in the greater Cape Town, Cape Town metropolitan who are living informally. Um, and with, with with no safety from fires and flooding. I mean, a few weeks ago we saw some terrible floods in Cape Town, and, and you 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 know you scared of the flooding sitting in your brick and mortar you know house or apartment. You can't you can't imagine what it's like in um, you know in 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 the township or in in you know in more precarious living locations. And I think and it was obviously unfortunate. But quite a quite a pat on the back that everyone in our developments were completely safe and secure through the floods. Unfortunately, we, there was a fire at next to our units at the beginning of the year, end of last year, 
and everyone was fully protected. And, you know, it, it, I think these small considerations really go a long way in terms of just the most basic, you know, human protection. So, so that's, you know, it's quite an important um, part of, of conceptualizing the model. And, um, the, you know, there's one thing to do fantastic housing and another thing to do scalable housing. So, as I mentioned earlier, it took five years to build one prototype, you know, between the advocacy and the um, build and building trust with the community. After the single prototype, we built four units and um, demolished four, you know, temporary dwellings and, and built four units. And after those four, we built 72. And we've just we've finished the, the first community of 72 last year. And according to, you know, just simple maths of that number pattern, if we go from one to four to 72, the next, you know, the next logical number is 205 units. After that, it's about 400 and, if I'm not mistaken, about 410. And, and so all of a sudden, you know, the growth is exponential once you've proven the concept, once you've, you know, figured out the teething pro problems, once you've really started to um, understand the challenges and roadblocks along the way, both from a city perspective and municipality and bylaws, but also just from a practical perspective and, and, and an actual construction perspective. How do we build better? How do we build quicker? And how do we build, um, you know, a, a quality product cheaper? So I think, you know, I think there's a lot of learning that's taken place. And, and ultimately, you know, we're a small company, but there really is a huge amount of potential in that scaling of, of, of the project. We've, we've built a model that can be that can be built in, for all intents and purposes, sites that are formally landlocked or locked from the formal economy by, you know, by means of, you have to undergo eviction processes and, and, and you know, from a, from a legal perspective, but then even just from an ethical and moral perspective, what do you do with the people who are living on those sites? And and the fact that um, there are about 3,000 of these sites available in the province means that we are, that there's a huge impact that can be made. And um, so it doesn't have to just be with us, you know, we, we, we extremely open and, you know, encourage collaboration between between entities, and I think that's something that's really important in this industry that we can start to learn from each other's learnings and, and collaborate and, and speed up the process. I mean, we 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 recently celebrated 10 years, celebrated the learnings of 10 years, celebrated um, housing 456 residents in 76 homes, but at the same time we're looking towards the next 10 years, and the challenge we've set for ourselves in the coming 10 years is a thousand homes. So it really isn't a linear process to to scale. But it um, is is extremely important. No, most certainly uh, very, very important. That's where we end off uh, for today, talking to Ben, um, you know, around the highest housing crisis in uh, South Africa, him just, you know, explaining uh, the fact that uh, when you look at policies such as uh, RDP, it's not to say that, uh, you know, the policy itself, um, you know, was flawed, but rather to say that in addition to it, 
um, you know, we should have, you know, other options uh, that are out there. And that's, uh, you know, some of the things uh, that, uh, you know, the likes of UTTE are trying to address, you know, putting together certain pilots, you know, from some of their learnings in other parts of the world where Urban Think Tank, um, you know, has a presence, you know, learning from places like, um, you know, Brazil, you know, to say what can we actually implement in a place like South Africa. And he does end off uh, by saying that uh, some of the models that they are putting into place, you know, are easily scalable. And uh, that has already been built into the design of how they actually came up uh, with the sum of uh, the policies. Very interesting, you know, to actually understand the fact that, uh there is a peak that is expected. I think he mentioned the year 2037. Uh, that I, I took note of that uh, of that year, and that uh, we might start to see a bit of a decline uh, population-wise. And it will be very important when you reach that peak to just make sure um, that um, everyone across the earth is able to have some of those basic human rights around having a, a roof over your head, um, you know, and ensuring that. They they have that security in their lives. Good to be, you know, chatting to Ben, and hopefully we'll be able to reach out again and get an update on some of the progress that they would have been able to make, you know, in future and going forward. So that's been it. We're chatting to Ben Collenberg, who is an architect and director over at Urban Think Tech Empower. Ben, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much. I really appreciate being on and I would love to check in as things progress. Most certainly. And that's been it for this edition of the Business Day Spotlight. Remember that you can find our latest podcasts on Business Live. That's under the podcast Business Day Spotlight tab on Twitter. We're hashtag BD Spotlight. And remember that you can review and subscribe for free on iono.fm, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, or wherever you choose to get your pods casted. I've been Mudio Gavaza of the Business Day and Financial Mail. And this has been another edition of the Business Day Spotlight, which is a multimedia live production. So from myself and the rest of the team, it is a good evening, good afternoon, and good morning.